Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writingmfa. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Today though you could call us Podcaster Chance and Podcaster Noah because we're about to break into the work of, uh, of a director who the people who work with them call him Director Bong, which I find to be just the most charming, uh, you know, title. Like when they're talking to him on set? And about him. Like Tilda Swinton, I read an email where she was like, one of the things about Director Bong is that he, I love it. You were emailing with Tilda Swinton? I read an interview where she- Oh, you she... said you read an email. Oh. <laughs> but no, we're here to talk about uh, the work of Bong Joon-ho on an essentials episode here on the Absolutely. playlist podcast network where you, by the way you can and should find other shows like the discourse the fourth wall and indie beat find us wherever you get your podcast we most assuredly shall be there thanks to california college of the arts writing mfa program for their generous support we love those guys bong joon ho has put out what in the minds of of many is uh, the film or one of the films of the year in in Parasite uh, rapturously reviewed the first time a South Korean film has ever won the Palme d'Or at at Cannes um, and it's getting slowly wider in its release throughout the U.S. so uh, we're here to talk about it and to give some career context for for director Bong. That's great. Tell me some tell me some Bong facts. You want some Bong facts? Yeah. In Portland, this movie took forever to get here. So before we even planned to do this episode, I kind of took it upon myself to just like, I might as well just watch all of his movies. Because Parasite is his seventh, which is kind of in that perfect window of like, oh, I'm way behind, but like not too behind. I could watch all these. And I did. Um, Amazing. So you watched his whole filmography. In the last month, yeah. And Incredible. I had, I had seen Snowpiercer before, and we'll talk about... <laughs> we're going to break one of the cardinal rules of the podcast. <laughs> one of the cardinal rules, of course, is you never talk about Snowpiercer. Because Be- Chance and I famously... I, when you first saw this movie, when I first saw this movie, you, yeah, famously, infamously were, like, in love with it. And I thought it was so stupid. Right, right. Um, and as a joke, ever since, I've been saying, oh, God, you never talk about Snowpiercer. Well... Here we are. We're going to chat about Here we about are it. talking about Snowpiercer. We're also going to talk about the host in far greater detail. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll mention some of his other movies along the way. So, um, so Bong Joon-ho comes out of this 
this new wave of Korean filmmakers who kind of come on the scene around the turn of the 21st century. And a lot of what people like he and Kim Ji-woon and Park Chan-wook are doing is making these sort of like kind of no holds bar genre films that if there's a commonality between them, they're kind of joined by this sense of, of black humor. Um, but they, they've been really successful overseas. Um, Bong has, uh, when he made The Host, it was the most successful South Korean movie in South Korea ever. He's now like 50. This is his seventh movie. Um, he started in 2000 with Barking Dogs Never Bite, which is a, I, I watched it. It's kind of definitively a first movie. We probably don't have to say anything more about that. Memories of Murder is his second. That movie is incredible, um, but it wasn't streaming anywhere. It's like actually maybe not available online, right? Didn't we look? How did you watch it, Chance? I went to Movie Madness here in Portland. Oh, nice. Yeah, love that place. What a godsend. Um, but that movie does something I want to talk about way more, which is that Bong will bring you inside of a kind of a stock genre premise where 10 minutes in the movie you'll be like, oh, I know what this is. I've seen this movie. And then you like most definitively do not know what it is. Right. Um, Memories of Murder is just an incredible small town noir that acknowledges maybe like no detective movie I've ever seen that uh, small town cops are can be autocratic morons and can sometimes shoot their own investigative methods in the foot by uh, taking advantage of their power, which is that kind of like, I wouldn't say that, what, what relationship would you say the movies we've watched have with like reality today? It's sort of the uh murphy's law kind of i mean i like that so remember yeah murphy's law take on the real world like the worst thing will happen Mm -hmm. uh if if you have the hubris to put yourself in a situation that could go wrong it will and there's like a sly cynicism to that that i find like super i think entertaining at best yeah at worst, it's like eye-rollingly parabolic or something. Okay, interesting. Uh, so you got Mother in 2009. That's also very good. Very similar to Memories. Is that the Earth. one where Jennifer Lawrence bleeds everywhere? That's right. Yeah, he uh, shadow directed that while Aronofsky sat at home crying, uh, trying to put together a director's cut of Noah. Um, and no, Mother <laughs> Mother's kind of similar to Memories of Murder. Those are kind of like his two small town crime movies. Uh, and then Okja, which is a fairly famous Netflix movie. Um, and after Snowpiercer is him doubling down on working with uh, like English speaking stars. And that movie has some, have you seen that one? I have not. It's the one with the big pig. It's the one with the super pig and the two Tilda Swintons. And isn't it? It's a supposed to, like a retelling, reimagining of Charlotte's Web, isn't it? Oh, um, not like explicitly, but you could make that okay. case. Sure. I had read some uh, review about it that said it was that. I haven't seen it. Yeah, but that's a very like big movie. That uh, also Okja broke the record for like most expensive Korean film production ever at the time well, um, you gotta i mean factor in the big pig <laughs> yeah and i mean i i don't think i'm spoiling anything by saying that there's more than one big pig in this movie so snowpiercer and okja on netflix but we're gonna start with parasite because i think it's kind of an interesting um reaction directorially to okja because i've heard him talk about how uh you know 
he started to feel like he had all the toys at his disposal. And Parasite is, while it is at times a glossy, beautiful-looking movie, is small and precise in a lot of ways, I think. How do you want to crack this nut? Well, um, I guess we should say that uh, we are going to play pretty fast and loose with spoilers. Like, this is one of those movies that... um, the less you know, the more you will probably like it. So we don't want to kick you out. You could easily go forward 20 minutes. We'll provide some timestamps if you don't want to hear an in-depth review of Parasite. But fair to say, I think we'll dive in pretty hard. Let's do it. I can't wait. Okay. Um, it's basically a movie about two families in yes. modern day Seoul. So the Kim family, which is this four person uh, family, father, mother, sister, brother, lives basically like underground a garden level apartment in the middle of the city where there is no garden um and it's was a a slight coincidence or maybe not a coincidence that like when i first saw it i was like what do they do if it like rains because it just seems like all the water from the entire city will run down into their uh, apartment they're like at the lowest point in the city yeah it's so funny and the movie like makes such a visual gag out of that it's so it was metaphorical as uh... yeah, yeah yeah but it's also a little bit just to talk about the how the apartment sort of begins it's almost a little bit it's zazzy isn't it how do you mean like zucker abraham zucker oh where it's like i think this movie more than the other two has like more visual gags and like movie gags. It's like, Oh, like look at this apartment. And then immediately you figure out that like people are peeing outside. Like this is literally the toilet of the city. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny how then through like slow motion and stuff, we're setting up this scene of they're at the lowest point. And the only thing they can do is rise. They are archetypical in that sense. Cause you don't know anything else about the Kim family other than the son, uh, Kiwu, cannot, is not able to go to university. You don't know anything about their past. Um, you know that one of them, the mother is like an Olympic bronze medalist. Oh yeah, and like shot put. But yeah, it's very mysterious at the beginning. And one of my favorite things, like reflecting back on it, is the first kind of job that they, uh, you know, like half lie their way into is in insta folding pizza boxes for this local company and their apartment gets accidentally overflow fumigated while they're doing this and the you know people are coughing and the patriarch of the family played by song kang ho uh who we're going to talk about a lot he's in all three of these movies is um you know you you have this really striking shot of him just staring through the bug gas at the youtube how-to video and just like keep i'm gonna keep going and in the midst of kind of this comedy you understand that there is some kind of perhaps frightening determination uh within this family that's gonna certainly come into play there's certainly a tenacity that is uh an admirable tenacity yes but like that's the thing these people you know from the jump that these people like have some weird grit about them that if the cards are up instead of down yep they something strange will happen <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
풀타임으로 수업 어떻게 하시는지. Is it okay with you? 우리 다성이는 완전 예술가 재질인데. 무슨 편지를 그린 거죠? 자화상이에요. 역시. 그동안 미술쌤도 여러 명 바꿔가면 세봤는데요. 제가 사람 하나가 킥하고 떠올랐는데. 아, 잠깐. 제시카, 외동딸, 일리노이, 시카고. 과선배는 김치 먹고는 이사촌. And then they inherit this rock. This like guy comes to visit and he's like, "Hey, here's this lucky rock." Yeah, the card the cards turn up right away. And yeah, and then the rock turns into a reveal about a potential part-time job tutoring for the son. And then yeah, they they rise from their drain to to the literally the canopy of South Korea. Yeah. Um, this super sleek house owned by the Park family. The dad works somewhere in tech. The mom is at home all the time. They have two kids, a girl, a teenage girl who's sort of uh, lackadaisically going about her uh, English studies. And then a little boy who's obsessed with uh, Native Americans and camping. Um, and that sort of outdoor roughing it fetishization uh, definitely comes into play some more. Um so then it very quickly, very quickly becomes like a con artist movie and is very breezy and enjoyable and funny. It's like a dirty like, rotten scoundrels. For like level. a half hour, right? Yeah. As slowly you realize that, uh, or maybe not so slowly, that every member of this family is going to get hired on as the help for the Park family if they can only get rid of the driver and the housekeeper. Um, and the best part of that, in my mind, for sure, is Sodom Park as uh, Ki Jung or Jessica becomes the art therapist for the little boy. Um, and the the bullshit that she serves to the mom about, like, if you look at the little, like, the, what's the kid, six? Like you have Something to look like at that. the schizophrenia zone in the bottom, <laughs> the bottom corner of his art. Um, is and the, yeah, and she notices that in fact all of his paintings have the schizophrenia yeah. brown corner. She's the attitude of the con, and she's really wonderful. I mean, just kind of randomly smoking, or it's that great part that's in the trailer where like she's about to go in the house for the first time. And of course, they're impersonating people with much better credentials, by the way. That's right. a part of it. But they like she kind of taps out the rhyme before he rings the doorbell. It's like, Jessica, only child, Chicago, Illinois. Um, great tidbit. Yeah. Well, just to, yeah, really putting a mnemonic device around the details that this character needs to remember about herself. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And that's so interesting, too, to see then these almost dual performances of the way this family interacts with this very, like, rich, privileged family, and then the way they act when they're just, like, just together and almost, like, not even that fond of each other. Right. <laughs> Yeah, what makes them like a unit or a family is also a little mysterious. Kind of like in right. The Host. But there is a loyalty there which holds the whole movie together, I think. And I think the whole movie is sort of about that. That loyalty between like class and family. And because like why don't any of these people run? You know, is sort of my my question. But then we'll we'll get to the ending of it. But like if you were stuck with these three other deadbeats or seemingly deadbeats, like why wouldn't you just try to strike out on your own from a much earlier age? You're right. So much of the movie is, a, I mean, it's 
over obvious to say it's about class, but it is also about like just the magnetics of tribalism. Like when it comes right. down to it, no one is leaving their tribe. So as the movie moves into its second half, you have probably my biggest takeaway from watching these Bong Joon-ho films, and I kind of teased at it already. You have, seemingly kind of from nowhere, a con artist film. And you're like, oh, this is a genre that I appreciate and that is easy to watch, and I enjoy the detail yeah. of it. And I don't care that much about how the sausage is made. Um, and then he pivots, because he always pivots, into... In a way that is both like, this is the thing I was struggling. He's not like a deconstructionist genre filmmaker. Sometimes he has little jokes about like, you know that part of the genre film, right? But his his aim is not to like take it apart so much as to disorient and then kind of reality check you. And it becomes a movie where you stop and are like, wait, so they pulled off what to them is the heist of the century so they could be servants? And this sense of like real anger and resentment kind of sets in at the same time as like there's a lot of stuff going on in the plot. I think it's sort of interesting to think about. I mean, we can get into our first spoiler here. What happens between these two families if the former maid doesn't show up? Like, I almost thought this movie was going in a place where they like overcome this family and like pretend that they're them or something. I thought so, too. Yeah. And but then the movie, I think, is good at until you like go down that that thinky rabbit hole there, it throws at it the maid coming back, which is so much more unexpected. Right. Yeah. Because so there's the scene where inevitably like the rich family goes out of town for the weekend once the four of them all have the jobs and they eat all their food and drink all their booze and are sitting around and they get to cosplay as the rich people. But then, yeah, there's that question of like, wait, so what was the plan? Did you just to work? the rest of your life what what was the goal here um right but yeah let's you want to talk about how uh upsetting things get when the maid does come back well the the maid reveals a sort of desperation that allows the theme to sort of pull out from just like this is how families behave to this is how an entire like class of people behave because what you realize is the house is built on this like series of tunnels that is like a bunker if one needs it for whatever unrest these rich people might experience in their lives. Uh, but what's happened is like the maid's Defin- husband. Re- sorry, real quick. Definitely tied to like North Korean nuclear anxiety, right? Isn't that in there? I would have to imagine. Yeah. This movie is interesting that it gives you some political context, but not a ton. Right. Which I think is fine because like then it makes it applicable to actual Korean concerns, mm-hmm. but also is not so weighty that you're like, What's that again? So, but anyway, I think it's about like, that's when the movie zooms out to make it about class. And what has happened is a family not dissimilar from this family who's sort of duped their way into this rich family's lives. Uh, This former maid had her husband living in the basement, essentially. And he would like, she would sneak him food and things. And they were subsisting on literally like just being parasites off of... I want to talk about the title in a second, but yeah. just being parasites of this wealthy family that had so much money that they didn't notice any inconsistencies in how much food there was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have a theory? I haven't really made sense of this myself, but is there something to the fact that the house for decades belonged to a famous architect? 
that it was designed by a famous architect. That is mentioned a lot. It is. And the the maid had originally worked for him and then just sort of came with the house right. when this other person bought it. Yeah. <laughs> when she was part of the property. Um, yeah. I don't know what to make of that. I have been thinking about that, too. And maybe that's just a like a social wink that's in to a Korean audience that would make more sense. Yeah. Handover from art to finance or something. I don't know. But I mean, that does make sense that something beautiful was then co-opted by somebody who clearly just knows how to make money, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that not even the the creator of this house could afford to even live in it himself. Yeah. That's a good one. My My buddy Tim made a point about how in an easier, more satisfying class allegory, all you want as an audience member is for the new help to team up with the old help to take on the rich people. But this class allegory just has so much sharper teeth and it becomes more of an us uh, style message. Yes, then it goes like, back to, it goes back to our family loyalty drama. Yeah. The one family cannot survive unless the other family is subjugated. And that's what makes, I think this movie and all of Bong's movies a little bit sort of, more cynical and fatalistic maybe mm-hmm. that like ultimately like there is none of that like class loyalty and like the you know the, they're not gonna storm the barricades after all and like find sort of equality for all people it's no like we have this one lifeboat you can't fit on it like fuck you <laughs> yeah that's snowpiercer uh, that's uh that's a nuclear bunker right yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nuclear Bunker is the real-life version of the Snowpiercer train. Absolutely. 100%. Like, it was either that or they had tickets to the Snowpiercer train. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and, you know, I was trying to do sort of, like, some cliff notes just on my, like, South Korean history. Because there are a lot of things that come up in these uh, all of these movies about just, like, education. It's like, oh, well, you're a college student. You can do anything. Um but I think that my theory ended up becoming that, I mean, you don't have, you have a country that modernized and democratized into being like uh, sort of a, a Western Eastern country. Um, right. Well, I mean, within with like, a lot of US influence. Yes. Within like 20 years, like starting in the late 90s is when. Right. Um, so I think you have this whole like group of filmmakers and I would definitely like include Lee Chang Dong, who made Burning, one of my favorites from last year in this group of like all of these guys who are about 50 who can kind of see the uh, Americanized system that we just consider to be bedrock. But like they see the fissures of it because they were alive when it like swooped into being. Well, I think because it was also thrown up in a way, too, that, you know, with our democracy, with our uh, colonial democracy, we also bring our colonial capitalism. Totally. Uh, 100%. And to see how this very Western world was constructed and, like, this family's living out of the cracks of this building, basically, and then goes on to, like, move into this fortress... Um, yeah, it's pretty nuts, but like I but I think that's why the movie translates so well to a western viewer is that what you're seeing is like the American ideal through like the, 
you know, through a scanner darkly or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but without the, you know, 200 years of romance of, like, what it is to be part of the folks, you know? There's no sense of, like, oh, the the Kims actually have a good life because they are uh, cowboys or salt-of-the-earth people. It's like, no, they don't have a good life. (laughs) They want to be in the, they would like equality with these other people. I was trying to figure out if I wanted to talk about how much I wanted to talk about tutoring. Oh, yeah, because you do a bit of tutoring. I do support myself with some tutoring, and I don't know if I've ever seen it like in a movie before. Um, that idea yeah. of, like, well, I think a lot of the anxiety here comes from this idea of. So, what's it, first of all, what's the worst thing that can happen if they just like get caught by the parks they get fired have they have they committed any crimes yet caught for like what like caught for being frauds yeah just caught for like being in the in the house oh like okay Uh, like if they get if they get caught at the end of that camping trip um i mean i don't know if it makes it all the way back to the document forgery but just i think that's where i felt the real twinge of anxiety is like they'll do anything to keep like in this like the highest level of what's still a fairly low station because we kind of all live under the threat of like well if the billionaires don't get exactly what they want like all the people who make money from the billionaires don't get any jobs so like everyone is like hostaged into the status quo and i don't know if i've ever seen that like portrayed quite so uh strikingly in a movie before i think that is really interesting um to show like again like why don't these people just like be like you know what we tried to fuck you it didn't work we're gonna go now yeah we'll go get a job at the pizza place yeah no but i mean i think it just speaks to that desperation because what what's the order of events do they when does their house flood before or after oh it's after after because right? it's the night that they're hiding under the table yeah i mean it just it shows how committed they are to their thing yeah and also committed to each other because they're working like acrobats to like get out of this situation it's so funny how quickly they like clean up all this stuff and just like the things you don't notice in the dark when they hide under the table when the family unexpectedly comes home and the son wants to camp in the backyard that was also a thing where i wanted to shout out some of uh bong's like visual virtuosity to the extent that we could from what i've read like he is just a consummate storyboarder like shoots no coverage on his movies just like will not do it they were shopping around his storyboards as like a book oh really heard yeah cool for parasite i don't know if anyone is interested in publishing such a thing but it's something that's out there in the world that's interesting but i think about the scene where they all you know where basically mom brother or dad brother sister hide under the table in the living room and in many a domestic thriller you could imagine people hiding under a small table but you don't get the perfect geometry of that scene where you're like oh this table is three people wide <laughs> and six foot one inches well, that's tall. what's funny about it is that it is so big it can hide three people right but it's also just like an interesting art piece to the table that has these sort of like mysterious like shadows on it right. so it's almost like you can hide in plain sight which i find so like fantastic about the production design that's true that's true okay let's plow toward the end or do we have any do we have any grievances with this movie well, I think uh, my favorite sequence is them leaving that house when they do make their 
miraculous getaway. And then they, you watch them sort of like go down the pipes of this city yes, and go from being on the, like I said before, the canopy down to just like the dirt, just the absolute bottom. And what they find is a miraculous set piece of the apartment you've just seen before and now filled uh, basically like sort of seven feet up or something with water. Sewage. And it's, and just, yeah, and just black water. And it's, it's disgusting. And they're just like navigating their way through it just to like get their meager possessions together and figuring out like what the next, the next move is. And yeah, I think that was, that's the best sequence of any three of these movies. Wow. Okay. That's, I like that call though. Um, So let's talk about the, end because it is truly a tragedy in multiple senses at the end would you agree oh of course the spoiler safety is off and off and off and off um so when the father when mr kim stabs the patriarch of the park family i was almost reminded of a moral quandary on the level of like do the right thing because nobody deserved to die in that situation no but the escalation of you know that buzz phrase of class rage mixed with the realization that they're just gonna work like the con probably does stop here and then mr park smells the smell of the dying man who's been hiding in the basement and recoils and it's basically like that's it and he gets it because it's almost like in that moment it was like you don't get to not be involved in this like you don't get to just leave this well i think it's anger too that he didn't pick the his dying daughter as the most important thing between her being shot and then the kid just what like passing out from shock yes oh a hundred percent that's it but the thing that really sets him off is he holds his nose. He smells the other guy and goes like, Oh, oh right, right, right. That is the, yeah, that's definitely what cracks the, I just watched day after tomorrow the other day. And like the first crack in the glacier that's about to split in two uh-huh. is in fact, yeah, that moment where he sniffs him and he knows why he's doing it. Cause he's overheard that when he was hiding under the coffee table Yeah, that the rich family thinks they all like smell like, like cooking smells and like, cause they're they're They live in a basement and they don't have any, uh, uh, air coming yeah. in. And it's such a, like a snowball of shit by that point that like, you're not going to stop oh it. God. Let me ask you this. Do you think though that the ending lands with a wiggle or like lands perfectly? I think that the Morse code stuff is like a reach for like another act of this movie that it doesn't necessarily need. I think that if we're talking about it on like a, like a plot and internal logic level, I'm not sure, but I think if we're talking about it on a thematic level, that's the reason that my eyes were watery when the credits rolled, because the letter that the son quote unquote, Kevin writes back to his dad, which is his dad will never get is about like, now I have a plan, dad. Now I'm going to go to college and I'm going to buy the house. And that's how you'll get your um, Shawshank Redemption moment on the beach is I'm going to play it straight and I'm going to buy this house. And that again is the bong reality check where it's like, 
And it, it made me think a little bit of like Widows, where you have a genre movie that gets so roundly reality checked at the end where it's like, no, you've been watching a, a stock premise that went off smoothly because it was a movie magic trick. And the minute this kid decides, I'm, you know what, I'm going to get it, Dad. I'm going to have the American or South Korean dream and I'm going to get you out of there. Nothing lies that way but hopelessness. And that was so, such a body blow. The ending dream sequence that smacks heavily of the 25th hour where he like thinks about not going to jail and instead like living life oh, on God. the lamb. Yeah. Uh, is a pretty dark exercise that ends up being just him fucking going to jail. Oh, that's a great comparison though. That's, that really is the, the kind of epilogue we're dealing with here. Yeah. Um, I think it works. I just don't know that I, that felt a little maudlin to me. Like I wondered if there wasn't like more of an emotional resonance of like having him come out and like horrifying these people at dinner or something right. and being like, you know what? I can't do it. It's a real choice in a movie that is needle sharp. Cause what does it, what does it say also about like the family thesis we're talking about? Like I thought what was holding these people together was like just the need to be together, not simply just survival on one's own. But that just seems like such a selfish choice based on such a selfless act, which to, in my mind is why don't you love my daughter as the way she needs to be loved mm. kind of question. So wouldn't he turn himself in? I don't know. I don't know, man. I think back. That's to, the wiggle I'm talking about. I hear that. I hear that. I think back to the shot, though, where you're like, maybe the dad does believe he is alone i think back to the shot where it's the fumigation and, and song kang ho is just watching it's just him watching the video realizing he's gonna forge sure. through. he has no access to the dream that like he believes his son is gonna forge his way into and song kang ho in all of these movies and in uh memories of murder does such a good job of playing these like these totally soulful failures and i think he is in his own way like you talked about just failing at keeping the the family unit together I agree with you. I think, yeah, all three performances are sort of similar, I would say. Even as the characters, I think, are different. The bo His body the language changes so much. He's a Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying he's not delivering interesting performances. I just think all these characters sort of, as you were saying, have this like sort of prideful fuck-up, but like yes. in a good way. Right. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Right. It's a, it's a question. Um Okay, so we're going to rate this movie by our rating system, but I'm also just interested if you think it's uh, worthy of the incredibly high praise that it's gotten. What do you think? Can you go first? I think it is worth the praise, which is like it makes these movies difficult to watch when it starts to get the picture of the year, you know, like in its its marketing campaign. Right. Um, but this one like really is stirring in a way that, like, I mean, I think it says about class what Get Out says about race. And I think it says it with as sharp a dagger. Uh, and in that way, it's provocative and stimulating and just, like, beautiful. I really sang the praises of Us very loudly earlier in the week. And I this is just, this is a better movie about about class. Um, uh, for a hundred percent, a better genre movie about class. Yeah, it. I mean, it pretty instantly like rockets to the. It is kind of similar to us. 
Oh yeah, oh, people living underground, shadow people <laughs> from a past literally time. people living underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This rockets pretty instantly to at or near the very top of the movies I've seen this year. It's phenomenal, and I need to go watch it again, like post haste. Yeah, you you teased that you might go see it. You didn't see it earlier today. You called again. me a freak. No, I ran out of time. I had to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I did call you a freak. Um, is it is it good? Good. I think it's good, good for sure. Hell yeah. I think it's, you may see it sneak onto our end of year <gasps> lists in the coming weeks. Okay. What? Red Sparrow 2. Oh, Jesus And Christ. then <laughs> Parasite. All right. You want to duck back in time to the host? So the host. 2006. What year is this? 2006. I didn't see this movie when it came out. Do you remember you people it? talking about it though? Yeah, but I was, it was 2006. I was like a junior in high school and people would be like, it's the import of the year. And being like, okay. <laughs> that is about like, yeah, the experience that I had with it as well. So I, yeah, I remember it, but uh, I had not seen it until recently now. Yeah. So this again follows a family, uh, a Korean family in, of the lower class. This one operates like a food stall, uh, like a kind of bodega by the river in Seoul. Yeah, the Han River. Um, by the Han River. And this time they are and called the Park family. Indeed, they are the Park family. And it's kind of a bleak color palette, I would say, to start. Yes. And you kind of know that you're in a movie akin to a, a Cloverfield movie. In Well, yes, until the monster shows up in full form right away. But in the beginning, yes. But yeah, so what you have is this family sort of going through their lives and like the child's complaining that like the dad didn't come to parent-teacher day and instead set their drunk uncle and like the grandfather's the patriarch and kind of like holding it together but like worrying about how his son's going to take over things when he inevitably passes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's, yeah, and the brother and sister, the sister's a really competitive archer. Olympic level archer, I think. Yeah, Olympic level archer and the brother's like a drunk former finance person. Whatever, he's some sort of professional but not a very successful one because of his drinking problem. What happens is this like fish monster that's, it's supposed by the movie is created by th- this incident of this scientist pouring all these toxic chemicals into a drain pipe that went right into the river. Right. That seems pretty funny. That's what opens the movie is like this white Anglo doctor telling this Korean doctor that he has to pour all these perfectly good chemicals just down the drain for no fucking reason other than the bottles are dusty on the outside. Yeah, just everything. every time you think like the movie is leveling off a little, the creepiest American you've ever seen shows up to ruin things. Mr. Kim. Formaldehyde. Dirty formaldehyde. Pour him into the sink.
But lo and behold, yeah, like this 30-foot fish monster thing pops out of the water and runs riot through almost like a, what's that arcade game where you're like the big wolf and monkey who are uh, Donkey Kong? and then they no they turned it into a movie with uh Dwayne the Rock Rampage. Johnson Rampage uh sort of like that and in the tail end of the Rampage the the youngest daughter so the granddaughter uh gets taken by the fish and brought back to its lair yep and so the rest of the movie unfolds half Cloverfield style of them like navigating the government, not knowing what's going on and like sending in the military. Um, and also this like, s- like survival rescue story of getting this little girl. Who's the one of two living people who's interacted with the fish mm-hmm. and been dumped in. It's like graveyard full of bones. Uh, yeah. She has to be found. And so she's trying to communicate with the family and nobody from the government who doesn't know what's going on believes them that the girl's not dead because they've already given her like a proper state funeral. It almost seems like it's like annoying to them that the girl might still be alive because like as far as the state's concerned, she's dead. She's on the deceased list, sir. Yeah. Let's talk about the monster because I think it's a really interesting monster i was watching like the special features on the it's a weta workshop monster on the dvd about it yeah um i they did lord of the rings i can't believe how like simultaneously like good and bad it looks if that if that is fair it's to say. awful it's an awful monster <laughs> i think it relies way too heavily on cgi in cases where you don't even see that much of the monster yeah it could be practical and yeah, I don't think the texturing. I, I think it's the it's the skin of the monster that looks so weird compared to everything around it. But I think what does work great is the camera work. Like the first shot of the creature sure, charging sure. down the river walk is not scary because of the creature. It's scary because of the perspective. Um, yeah, it's scary because of how quickly the fish is growing in the POV. Yes, yes. absolutely. And, I mean, you would put anything in the spot where the fish is and it would be terrifying. And that's the power of Bong again. I thought it was really cool that uh, the, the guy leading the effects team in the U.S., I think his name is Kevin Rafferty, was talking about, like, we got the, the plates and the shots and stuff. And we were like, because now we just have to animate the fish. And we were like, this movie is going to be beautiful. Like, they were so impressed with the camera work that they were then going to, you know, VFX into, um, right. which I think is pretty rad. And there is some funny stuff in there about how, like, Bong at one point was like, I want the fish to look like Steve Buscemi, <laughs> which was <laughs> pretty great. Um, but, yeah, it's um, – I like the way it moves – but like at the, I don't know if it's, it's a little bit of jackassery, but like when it's on fire at the end, like that looks terrible. That does look terrible. And it's so annoying because like the practical effects of the dropping like Agent Orange or whatever is so cool yeah. that like you almost like don't want the monster to be in any of the shots because they're otherwise beautiful because they're practical. It seems like a reaction to Jaws in some ways, but like sure. it, when it's just a shadow in the water, it, it's terrifying. Um, That's why you show the monster less, man. Nobody's saying we want to see more monster. It's interesting though. One of the qualities of the monster that I, I want to lead into the rest of our discussion of the host is 
the monster is designed in Bong's mind to be in pain. It is a mutation of a fish that was never meant to grow or move that way. And this movie right. is just painted over with a surprising amount of suffering, much more than you would find in an American disaster movie. There's a lot of suffering. I found the like the brain drilling pretty unwatchable. Horrifying. And just he's like screaming and trying to reason with this man and who's like not paying attention to him at all. And it's like fucking devastating. Yeah, it is. That I that wasn't of... an Independence Day. <laughs> no. Was that in Day After Tomorrow? That, it was not. It was wolves. And uh, you know what else is not in those movies is the child they're trying to rescue fucking dying. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, which on the one yeah, hand... Yeah, they don't get the daughter back. On the one hand, I think those are the brave reality check choices. On the other, this is a movie that's hard to watch because right. it's it's tough. Um, one of the things I think is great about it, though, on a kind of a thinky level, is how much of a Bush-era movie this is. Um, For sure. Because I was just... I watched the report the uh, Adam Driver, Scott Z. Burns movie about putting together the torture report and just the like, just the circular logic that the CIA used to torture people. It's like, well, it's only bad if it doesn't work. So therefore it must work. And that's absolutely the foreign policy that the U.S. is exporting into finding this virus, right? It's like, well, we're only wrong if we don't find it. So like we better find the virus slash the WMDs. The movie becomes this strange thing where it's not just the monster. It's they fear the monster has given them a virus, which is sort of a goofy way to pivot, I thought, from one genre. I understand that Bong's like trying to play with multiple genres here, but like going from Godzilla to Outbreak and then back and realize that the Outbreak narrative was actually just a red herring is sort of strange. Mm-hmm when it ultimately becomes like a find the missing girl story. Yeah. I don't know. The, the I feel like the tone and the verisimilitude of this movie didn't quite work because you have this idea of this monster's attacked. They believe it's like given off a virus or something. And they also think this is dangerous. And then this family goes through this set of ordeals while this girl who has no access to food is just like hanging out in this drain pipe. But it seems like for the family, the Park family seems like they have been dealing this for like weeks. Whereas like when they find the daughter or maybe it's like a Christopher Nolan kind of thing where like her timeline is just a stretched out version of a shorter amount of actual time. But it was almost ridiculous to me that like it, she wasn't just dead of starvation. How long do you think it's been? I thought it maybe four days. I thought it had been like weeks. Like the reset to like where they've separated and one of them sleeping in the bridge. Yes. Okay. Like the them having not spoken to each other for a few days after the death of the father. I thought it had been weeks. Mm, maybe. Yeah, you could be right. But then it doesn't make any sense that that little girl and that little boy are still alive. So then the ending was like, of course they're dead, but like they look still a little like alive sure, to me. Sure. Like they would have looked really dead. I just like the the things I like about it the most are the thematic things. I it took me a long time to realize that the the we're so used to the language of disaster movies being like 
the monster knocks over a building because like fuck these monuments to our like our cities and like a whole building fell down but nobody got hurt the, what does right. the monster destroy in this movie like a truck like one truck um but it also kills a lot of people yeah but that's what i mean it doesn't it unlike you know this almost like celebratory a nuclear bonfire of like blowing up our structures the monster hides in our labyrinth of structures and who gets fucked like the poor people so again right you get to put to use the phrase that you texted me the other day like you get bonged you get reality checked over the head there about like what would happen if this crazy thing happened which i like I just didn't love the second level. I thought the unwatchableness of this movie comes from that second level of like the government. Not only are they getting fucked and can't find their daughter, they're not only getting bonged, they're getting double bonged because like they're also having like medical testing done against them, which is this movie becomes a little torture porny at some point. I mean, like maybe as a goof, but like still like when they're taking the tissue samples and stuff. Yeah. It becomes a little much, I think, for me. And that's, I think, why I like Parasite, which has a lot of violence in it, but it's not so like, oh, and now her head like comes off of her body. It's like, okay. Like, we can just know from a thud that that woman's dead. Yes. Um, yeah, I will say I have seen it twice in the last month, and I don't, I still don't really understand, like, what, Gangdu, what his condition is like he's kind of a slow troubled person right and the dad at one point gives a very affecting speech about like he just has to sleep you guys and like i can even i can tell by his farts whether he's in a plus or b minus condition and his siblings like just don't give a shit um they're just asleep they're literally asleep while he's telling this story and you can really feel the family unit in that moment where like of course as the one person goes full confessional like the other people were like it's time for me to tune out right um like what's what's more like a dysfunctional family than that um but yeah i don't get the thing where like his particular condition helps him survive the medical i thought they were giving him a lobotomy and he's I thought they were too. And he's fine. He's the same. Is that a joke? Well, is the joke that like he was so dumb that you could like remove a section of his brain and he'd be the same? That might be the joke. I don't know. I, I just don't also know how I feel about like the ethical question of like having this Forrest Gump type character be at the center of a movie like this. Yeah. I don't know. It's it could be a little tough. I could see that. Um I do want to talk about, can I point out another bong theme? Please do. He is so good, especially when he gets into action filmmaking with tempo shifts. He's great at the start of a chase and more affectingly than any other director I can think of is so great at the, oh, we're fucked moment. Like we're legitimately fucked. And there's some kind of like emotional honesty happening there on a grand stage, whether it's in Snowpiercer where they run into the train full of the guys with the cleavers and the fish, or when the dad realizes like, I don't have any bullets. And I don't know when you're talking about the moving pieces that are that big. I don't think you often get the very real intimate sense of like dread that he gives. He's a good director. I think that's great. Yep. So you're not definitely not as high on this one. What are you going to rate it? I found this one pretty oppressively dark. Uh, I think it's maybe a good bad. I mean, I think it's a decently made movie. 
I, but I don't quite follow its beats. And there's like a lot of like icky stuff. Okay. That's really where Bong loses me in general is the icky stuff. <laughs> That's your particular uh, hang up. That's really what I want to know. I wish more reviewers would focus on how icky movies were. Sure. Because I have no taste for the icky. Yeah. This was a bit bulbous for your taste. For certain. <laughs> it was bulbous. I totally understand an argument for good, bad. Um, I was surprised how willing I was to watch it again. I would probably watch it again soon. I'm going to give it a good, good. That's that's fine. All right. I, I can see the argument being made for that. And it's really just like not my cup of tea. Yeah. I think all, all these movies are like well made. Right. It's really just like how indulgent will Bong be and how watchable will that exercise be? We got to get, yeah, we got to get you, I really want to find, maybe I'll get you a copy of Memories of Murder somehow because it's I love a good. So good. You like mysteries. Sounds like a movie. I love a good mystery. Sounds like a movie. (laughs) Put me in front of it, baby. Yeah, sounds like a piece of uh, motion picture filmmaking. That's right. I think I'm interested. Coming up next, another discussion about a piece of motion picture filmmaking. Uh, Snowpiercer from 2013. You do talk about Snowpiercer. <laughs> I, I don't know that you do talk about Snowpiercer. We, we haven't like finished talking about it. In fact, we've yet to talk about it. So we don't know what the results are going to be. Okay. So this is on Netflix and has been for years um so you can watch we'll synopsize real fast because it's the easiest movie in the world to synopsize it's based on a french graphic novel where the premise is very similar to the premise of the movie which is that to stop climate change they drop a chemical maybe sort of an agent yellow style chemical that's meant to lower the world temperature uh and it freezes the entire earth the only survivors get on the uh you know the analog version of that terrifying jeff bezos every time you hear jeff bezos be like i think we should explore space you're like that's the scariest thing i've ever heard because you're but he's gonna build a thing that'll save the human race it sounds like yeah he'll be at the front of the train is what is gonna happen yeah with the the eternal engine that's right um but yeah this is the uh this is like the steampunk version of that uh, where this guy named Wilfred, played by Ed Harris, who you don't know, it's Ed Harris for a long time, but he's at the at the front of the train, um, and it's divided by class. Uh, basically, only like two compartments, though. It's like slave <laughs> slave labor in the back. It's like steerage, but it's also like concentration camp shit in the back. And then uh, the Richies in the front, and it is circling. I guess he was a tycoon who invented this trans global railway system. So now the train just runs forever and ever. And uh, Chris Evans is like the leader of these people at the back who are finally ready to have a revolt and, and go forward. This chaos. A thousand people in an iron box. 18 years I've hated the train. 18 years I've waited for this moment. This is your world. The train saved humanity. The engine lasts forever. The population must always be kept in balance. I said sit down. Passengers, eternal order flows from the sacred engine. We must occupy our preordained position. I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. 
Know your place. Keep your place. Those bastards in the front think they own us. We'll be different when we get there. What do you say? We take the engine. And we control the world. When is the time? Soon. But I really want to know, because one of the rules on the pod was you never talk about Snowpiercer, why did you so detest it? Oh, I mean, from the jump, this is an icky movie. I mean, this movie picks up when <laughs> they're, the in, they're in a, uh, the back of a train car and they're like, none of them have showered in 17 years. Okay. They don't seem to have access to running water. And they're given these black uh, jello jigglers called protein bars to eat. Yeah. It's and just Cliff Bars. It's icky. It's icky. It's not. Oh, my. and Green is bugs. So you only didn't like it because you found the subject matter gross? I think the movie, if we're being honest, lost me at the cockroach scene. Okay. Yeah, you did. And then... <laughs> And then it just like continued down a weird rabbit hole after that, almost literally. There's something very like Alice in Wonderland about this movie. Like, what's in the next car? Yeah, that's an exciting, intriguing question, leading to brilliant production design and a cool allegory. That's cool. And I don't even think that the like the hand-to-hand choreography is that compelling. Like a lot of the times, like much like they don't show the fish monster from uh, the host. The the camera like wobbles enough that you're like, is Chris Evans, Captain America kicking some ass here? Like I've seen before. Or is like, he just like flailing about wildly, like in what the half shadowy dark about? here. Are you saying that what the you... fighting in Snowpiercer is worse than the fighting in Marvel movies? Fighting that people yeah, 100%, universally 100%. acknowledge is shitty fighting. Who who acknowledges that? Martin Scorsese? Me and Marty. That's what he said. P.S. at the bottom of his goofy op-ed. Fighting is shitty. Fighting The fighting sequences of this movie are crap. We're going to fight enough not bringing Marty into this. Um, but you don't think this movie's icky? Icky? I don't care that like they eat bugs. It's like a twist about... like For 17 years, they've been eating bugs. <laughs> it doesn't make it a bad movie. It's just a gross... Twist. What kind of movie, what good movie has people eating bugs in it? <laughs> good movie has people eating bugs. Uh, Temple of Doom. That's not a good movie. Yeah, Temple of Doom's bad. <laughs> the, you know from the second that they unearthed the chilled monkey brains that that movie is going to be bad just the way you know this movie is going to be bad when they tell you they're eating cockroach guts. I feel like you brought me into a tunnel and turned on your night vision goggles because you said you were feeling better about this movie and now you're just... Then the second you said its name, just... I went back to... You're just hacking away at me with your hatchet. Um, okay. So, what do you want me to say? That it's still a really fucking cool action movie? Because it is. I mean, again, it goes back to the tempo changes in this movie are amazing. The initial like thrust of the revolt when they realize the guns have no bullets is as exhilarating as the sheer terror when the Eggman says there are some things thought to have been extinct that are still very much alive on the train and the guns come back. I mean... And also, like, you don't know the first time you watch it that you're going to go to, like, intriguing set piece to set piece and car to car. You really found that not cool? I just never thought this movie chose a tone. Like, it chooses to be, like, 
a a serious like thrilling action movie but b this Alice in Wonderland kind of ridiculous thing with these characters who, okay, like probably haven't interacted with that many other people in the past 17 years, but are still like a little bit like kookier than maybe my suspension of disbelief allows me to be like, oh, they're at the heart of this. Like I wanted this You're movie to maybe Tilda. be a little bit more serious. Tilda, and then what's her name? Who's the teacher of the, like the primary school? Right. Um, more North Korean. And then references. even like the big guy who doesn't speak was like a little Bond villain hard to kill for me. I don't understand what you're saying. Like, it's not a realistic movie. I just don't think he's... This one feels like the the class war at the heart of it is almost secondary to how many like goofy, like off kilter action tropes he can work into the production. There is nothing goofy about the twist of the sunlight coming in in the in the fighting car for the first time, and then the tunnel, and the brilliant little piece of like the translator's not working, and Koa Sung, who plays the daughter in the in the host, is like, "Oh, my dad says you guys are fucked." Oh, there's a long tunnel, a really long tunnel, and then it reverses field again, and they come in with the torches. Like that's really cool set piece work. I'm not saying that this movie isn't artfully plotted. I'm saying because of the weird tone of it you don't know like what's serious and what's supposed to be like emotionally resonant. I I felt nothing when Jamie Bell died. I will grant you that I do not think that he and Chris Evans feel lived in. I didn't feel anything either when, because it's supposed to be some great irony of the movie, right? That like um, the John Hurt character, like, pull like gave mercy to chris evans when he needed it which yielded the the rise and then like brotherhood of him and jamie bell but like jamie bell's dead and then like this other guy's dead and we're supposed to care about that a lot of the movie is two people talking about something like very very serious and and you don't know they those feel more like roland emmerichy kind of like action movie no they things, do where not it's like I'm sort of a father figure to you, but like you must choose good. Yeah, but also just like Greek tragedy. Okay, but that's tropey. Yeah, it's a movie full of tropes that's playing around with tropes. I never said it was like God's gift. I didn't. Okay. What about this? But in that way, like there are good tweaks on action movie reveals and surprises. I'm not saying it's not a surprising movie, I'm not saying it's a well plotted movie. I'm not saying it isn't a well-plotted movie. I'm saying that, like, it's, like, the reason that I never saw Tim Burton's remake of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is the same reason that this movie doesn't appeal to me. Mm. The tone is too weird and icky. One of the things that I really like about it is that I, too, was not that high on rewatch on the Tilda Swinton character because she is sort of being this, like, Dolores Umbridge uh, Cheshire cat with dentures, um, you know, yelling about how like Wilfred is divine. Um, and I mean, it's like funny, kooky Tilda Swinton, but you're kind of like, wait, so she's trying to convince these people that have, you know, some of them were adults in the real world. Like she's pulling the wool over their eyes with like your most basic propaganda chatter. And then you realize that you know, they don't even really care enough to feed the full propaganda to the back of the train because they only need the chosen people to maintain the system. I 
while I admit the Ed Harris talking at the end is a lot of talking it's about like 15 minutes of talking when you do i do want the movie to continue its momentum um that's the full speech though that's the full pitch where it's not like we convinced you dumbed down people to live in a dictatorship it's that we convinced the people who matter that this train is an ecosystem um and i think that the while it's not as pointed and maybe deeply felt as something like Parasite, I do appreciate that Chris Evans is the the Curtis character is able to reject that in the end, and they're just like, yeah, we blow this up because on some level, like the we all, we just need the new people to go forth. Like I think the overall themes being played with are cool, and yes, age old, but I think they work. But why does this movie need to have a line like, "I know that babies taste better than adults." You're so stuck on the icky thing. Can you make a more... But the icky thing is so, like, glaring it. It's so, like, shamelessly icky as to be like, I dare you, Noah, to call me good bad. I dare you. It's like, okay, I'm not enjoying myself. You're good bad. Shamelessly icky is a stupid thing to say because no line is more filled with shame in the entire movie. But, like, that's gross. Like, I don't want to watch a movie... Move to a different thing, okay? You don't have that. This is how I feel about the movie. And then like, you know, Lucy and I are sitting there watching it and we're both like, this is gross and icky. And what is this movie? And I'm like, I don't know. Chance likes it for some reason. I love it. I think it's good. I don't know why. I don't know why you're like so forgiving of it's like gross, like arm freezing off and getting smashed violence porn. It's not violence porn. You don't see the arm. Yeah, but you know it, and that's almost worse. <laughs> then it's like, well, gross, just gross stuff. You know what porn. is a your yeah icky porn. A very common theme of porn is not seeing the thing. So a well used critique on your part. Oh, for God's sake! Um, yeah, I got you on that one, didn't I? Um, okay. There are books that are considered <laughs> pornography, and they don't offer any like visual representation. Okay, Tipper Gore. So I know porn when I smell it. Smell it. That's what I said. <laughs> okay, Tipper Gore's dog. So, so what you're saying is we have a series of like wooden stock characters running through this like icky, super. It, they're basically on like the train Titanic, and they're going through all these luxury rooms, and it becomes a phantasmagoria of Amtrak life. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> And it doesn't really make sense how these people are surviving anyway. And then, like, because What's-His-Name stole all the explosive drug thing that they're addicted to, but they're actually not addicted to. Cronal. Uh, Cronal. Mm-hmm. That's a great bit, though, where she keeps, like, asking. The Cronal thing's a little like the those little, like, I don't know, things they're sucking on in Minority Report, you know? Sure, sure. Industrial ways to get you high. But I love that Koa Soong, as they go from room to room as an afterthought, is just like, Cronal. And you're like, why is she still asking for that? Of course, there is a reason. What I think that the, the thing that I think saves the Chris Evan performance, who, yes, is quite wooden, is the idea that underlying this woodenness, the sort of reluctant action here, is basically a suicidal person. You, as, as they make the first exhilarating jump out of the steerage car, 
how does he test whether they have any bullets by firing one into his brain as if to be like, well, if this doesn't work, I'll be the first to go. Um, he's a very troubled man. There's that brow hangs heavy for a reason. For sure. I don't know that he's that compelling a protagonist though. I would agree with that. And then if I can put maybe the final nail in my damning coffin of a review on this movie, you of all people, Chance, should be frustrated by this movie's Ocean's 12 ending of it turning out the whole thing was his plan to begin with. Ed Harris, uh, Mr. Wilfred. Yeah. Wilfred. Um, am I frustrated by that? I just didn't love that the last note of this movie was... You know, even the poor, even Elizabeth Warren supporters are being, even Bernie bros are, what's behind them is the corporate America telling them to vote this way. Yeah, but then that system gets blown up. Yeah, sure. I think it works. So, okay, look, I I don't think this, after, as a 22-year-old, I thought this movie was like the coolest thing I had ever seen in my entire life. I maintain that it is still pretty fucking kick-ass in a lot of ways. It is intensely creative. It is wonderfully shot. I think the violence is compelling. I think that the twists in the action staging are really cool. I'm with you. The characters are, like, not perfect. And Ed Harris talks too much at the end. And I think, frankly, that Song Kang-ho should have just played the protagonist. And Chris Evans should not be in this movie. Um... I think that would be a better movie. I think that uh, from what we saw of him in the other films, he can play that guy who is almost like catatonic because of his past misdeeds. Don't you think that would be a better movie? Oh, for sure. Well, what you have here, though, is sort of a acid trip Gangs of New York meets <laughs> Amtrak. And... That's something I would watch. I don't know. Over as wonderfully shot as it is, as much better as Ed Harris is than, say, like a Tommy Lee Jones at the end of Sad Astra, uh, this is an icky movie to its core and is not then that watchable of a movie. And I also just don't really like it. And I don't know that I have any more uh, nuanced way to put it. So for me, as it was before, oh. a bad bad My god this is quite a good good <laughs> oh uh i don't say quintessential you say quintessential it's good good but you do sometimes say oh it is i if we are returning to our initial stations uh me to the front of the train of course and you to the back you <laughs> you intellectual <laughs> piece of shit um i think it's eating my bug bars i think it is a good good feast of course you do on your bug bars i don't care of if it course took you a do. couple bi- you're the one watching this movie as those little kids are watching like the train documentary in their class just being like yes tell take us to another car i love this movie I don't care if it takes a couple kids to make this movie. <laughs> a couple... It's also very long. It is a little. That's just petty. It is a little long. I get you. I will say though that I don't think I don't know if I finished my thought. Where do I think Snowpiercer actually falls quality-wise among his movies? The bottom. It's probably like four out of seven. Sure. Yeah. The Parasite's great though. 
Parasite is incredible. You gotta watch Memories of Murder. If you really like Memories of Murder, just go ahead and watch Mother. I don't think you're. I don't gonna have li- to watch Okja. You're not gonna like Okja if you don't like Snowpiercer. I don't think. Is it icky? It looked icky. Yes, it's the, the icky. poster's icky. <laughs> yes. Not everything can be so fucking sanitized. Roland. I, that was the my the my favorite part of the of Parasite was the house. It was so clean. Yes. You the whole time you were like, oh god, I hope it doesn't get dirty. That's what I was stressed out when they hadn't you actually are... cleaned up the stuff that they knocked off the table. <laughs> you are the worst. You're truly part of the problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Uh, anything else to say about uh, Director Bong? Even though we threw down, I still had fun today. No, oh, I had fun too. And I think our our what we can say is that our friendship survived. Yeah, absolutely. Our friendship crawled through this podcast car by car. Our friendship's and that polar bear up there on the cliff. God knows right. how it's still out there. The snow is melting, guys. <laughs> <laughs>